imagine, imagine that it's Christmas Day. That's only two weeks away, so you don't have to imagine that hard. Imagine you're a child, and your dad has been away on a long trip. It's been weeks, months since you've seen him. You know he's going to come home on Christmas Day, and when he comes, he's going to have presents for you and your brother and your sister. So you wake up early, full of excitement. You hear his voice in the living room. You run down the hallway, and you turn around the corner, and you see your dad and your brother and sister and 20 or 30 other kids from the orphanage down the road. And all of them are gathered around your dad, and he's passing out gifts to all of them. They're all, the orphan kids, your brother and sister, they're all wearing matching Christmas jammies. And your dad sees you and smiles widely and invites you to come over and sit on his knee and he tells you that he's back and he's adopted these 25 orphans to be in your family now. And you rejoice in being so close to your dad again even as you wrestle with the new reality that your family just got a whole lot bigger. You are sharing your dad with a bunch of people who feel like strangers and some actually kind of worse than strangers. You would sort of sneer at them sometimes as you would walk by and see them playing on the other side of the fence. How's that going to go for you? The experience I just described is 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 my attempt at capturing in a, in a parable what it would have been like for the Jewish believers in Jesus, like Peter, to deal with Gentiles being included in the church. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. The Holy Spirit was the gift promised by the Jewish prophets. This is our Savior. This is our gift. And all of a sudden, you read about in the book of Acts, all of a sudden, this gift is being given to all these people that you don't even need, wouldn't even eat, eat a meal with. Peter himself was ground zero for this. You can read about it in Acts 10 and 11. And, and, and you might wonder, if, if you read Acts 10 and 11, how Peter's whole story gets repeated more than once in detail. Okay, that's important. That's the, that's when, when the Bible repeats stuff, that's their way of like drawing lines and arrows and bold and stars and highlighter to help us see this is super important. Do you think it would have been a lot for Peter to process? I think so. That God had opened up his family to not just be the people who could trace their family tree back up to Abraham, but now God had extended his family to anybody who had faith in Jesus the Messiah. I think it would have been a lot for Peter to process, but the proof that he did process it is here in our passage today, where Peter says some incredible truths to his readers who, like us, were probably mostly Gentiles. In other words, not from 
Jewish ethnicity. And Peter writes to these people about their inclusion into the one family of God. Now let's remember that today's passage comes in a bigger section where Peter is talking to us, he's talking to Christians about their identity. And so this is a passage for people who have believed in Jesus. Now again, if, if that's not you, it could be you any moment, any time, by just believing and bowing your knee to King Jesus, repenting of your sin and coming to him. Anyone, anytime is has an open invitation from Jesus to come to him. And this passage is written to those who have done that, who have been called by God's grace and brought into his family. We heard last week, as Peter's talking about our identity, last week that God is building up his people on the cornerstone of Jesus to be a spiritual house, which points to the temple, right? The temple was just a picture. This is the reality. And we're a holy priesthood. In other words, our whole lives are serving the Lord bringing his blessings to the world. And, and yes, there were many, even among Peter's Jewish brethren, who refused to believe in Jesus. They tripped over Jesus. The, the cornerstone, instead of being built on him, they tripped over him, which is what the prophets foretold. And that's where we left off last week. And then we get to verse 9, which says, But you, so this is just the continuation of, of, of this one big thought. We, we have to keep interrupting Peter, but, but this is the continuation of this one big thought. But you, you who believe, you who have obeyed the word, you who have said yes to Jesus, who have, have come to him, this is who you are. And Peter tells us who we are. And once again, as Peter tells us who we are, he draws deeply from the Old Testament to help us, help his readers, which includes us, to understand our identity. And so once again, if we want to understand what he says, we've got to go back to those Old Testament passages, see what they mean, and then we can see what Peter's doing with them. So in verse 9, he draws on two Old Testament passages, Exodus 19 and Isaiah 43. And we're going we're gonna to make some stops there to see what's going on. So if you've got your Bible, if you don't, you can grab one from the little shelves by the back doors there. Um, but you can, you can uh, turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus, second book in the Bible, and chapter 19. Verse 1, as, as you turn there, I'll read verse 1, which gives us some context. Here's what's going on in Exodus 19. On the third new moon, which is basically month, that they, they measured their months generally by, by the moon. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. So it's been, it's been three months since the Red Sea split, all of that. On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Sinai, where the mountain of God was, where they're going to... They're, they're about to hear the Ten Commandments. But, but to really appreciate what's going on in this passage, we need to understand that Israel has just come out of Egypt. When they, went, when they first went down to Egypt, how many people were they? About 70. Okay, they, they were like a big family, like a big Mennonite family. Some of you, have, you know, 70 people. That, that you, you know what that, you know, you get together for the family reunions. That, that's what they would have been like. Now they number in the hundreds of thousands. I mean, potentially up to two million, depending how we count. But here's the thing. They've grown to that number while being slaves. They've grown to that number while living inside of another country. They've never, they've never had self 
autonomy. They've never ruled themselves. They've always been ruled by the Egyptians this whole time. They've never been together as a nation outside of Egypt before. So it's, it's a serious question. Did they even think of themselves as a nation? Right? We, th- we think of that because we know what's coming. We know they're going to have kings and Jerusalem. And all. They, don't, they don't know any of that yet. Do, do they even think of themselves as a nation? And even if they did, like who were they? They had only ever known slavery. They had only ever known slavery as, as a nation. So now that they're free, who are they going to be? This is a big question. Okay, on a personal level, people who are in, like I've heard stories of people who were literally in slavery and they get set free. And, and that's where it begins is now they have to say, well, who, who am I now? So Israel as a nation, they're, well, first of all, they're a nation now. What are they going to be? Well, God tells them, beginning in chapter 4, verse 19, sorry, uh, verse 4 of chapter 19, in these verses, God gives them their identity. This is their, their national charter. This is like their declaration of independence, or we're Canadian, so this is their uh, declaration of confederation, okay, we could say. Um, I don't even know what, it, confederation documents, I, Anyways, whatever made Canada a nation, Declaration of Independence, this is their version of that. Except notice who it's coming from. It's coming from God. And let's pick up in verse 4. Here's what God says to them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Okay, so, so notice who created the nation of Israel. God did. They did not win a war of independence. God pulled them out of Egypt, the way an eagle flies something away. God carried them out. God brought them to to himself so that they would be his. And, And now, what's he say? Now, therefore, pick up here in verse five. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, Here's who you're going to be. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Is Israel going to be more than just a bunch of former slaves? Oh, yeah. Way more than just former slaves. They're going to be a nation and not just a nation, but God's treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. His personal treasure, a kingdom of priests representing God to the nations of the world, a people devoted to him, right? That's the meaning of holy, a holy nation. (coughs) You're going to be mine. And this is what God brought them out of Egypt for. These are profound words. And as God speaks them to the nation of Israel, he, he creates what he's speaking. He creates a nation with this identity. We are gods. And a, a G-O-D apostrophe S. We, know that we belong to God. And our whole mission as a nation is to serve him and to represent him to the world. Now let's turn over to Isaiah 43. These words come centuries, hundreds of years after Exodus 19. Israel is not in their homeland anymore, right? A lot's happened. They went into their homeland 
And after rebelling against God for hundreds of years, they've been taken out. They're in exile in Babylon. And they're longing for a second exodus. So this whole section of Isaiah, from chapter 40 to the end, God promises to bring them out of Babylon the way he brought them out of Egypt. There's all kinds of language that talks about this, this coming out of Babylon the way that they came out of Egypt. It's a second exodus as he's going to bring them home to himself, as he's going to come and rescue them just like he did before. And he says words to them very similar to what he said in Exodus 19. So Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. Just think, you get that? God made the nation of Israel. He made them. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Do you hear there an echo of a a people from my own possession? And now he's saying, "You're, you're mine, Israel. They're still his personal treasure, and he's going to rescue them. Verse 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. So you get that sense of his personal treasure. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will. Now listen, catch this. This is a language of the second exodus. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone whom is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So just like what God did with Egypt, he's going to do again to bring the people that he made out of the nations where they had been sent and to bring them to himself. And just like the first exodus, this great second exodus, he's bringing them to himself so that he can have a relationship with them. Look at verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Why did he choose them? So that they would know him and believe him and understand that he is, he is God. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So he brought them to himself to, to be in a relationship with him. Just like in the first exodus, in the second great exodus, he's going to bring his people safely through the wilderness. Look at verse 20 to 21. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. Jackals, by the way, those are coyotes. That's basically the same thing. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. So just remember God in the first exodus split the rocks, gave them water in the wilderness. He's going to do that again as he brings them home. As I, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Why did he make them? So that they would declare his praise. So here's a great question. When did this great second exodus, when did it happen? Well, partially it happened when the people came back, just a little bit, uh, well, actually it was, it was a few hundred years after Isaiah's prophecy but it happened under the Persian ruler Cyrus as the people came home and they, they rebuilt the second temple. You read about in the book of Ezra. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, which you read about in the book of Nehemiah. 
But at the same time, there's a sense that that even though they're back in their homeland, they never really came home from exile. God's glory never filled that temple that they built. That, that, was, that was a sign of God's presence with them, was his glory filling the temple. And when they built that second temple, nothing happened. And, 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 it was, and, and the whole time that they were doing that, foreign powers were ruling over them. So it's kind of like they, they, they came home, but it's like they never really did come home. Here's the idea, is that, is that even when they lived in their homeland, God's people were still waiting to be set free from exile. They were still waiting for these promises from Isaiah to be fulfilled. And that's why it was so exciting when John the Baptist showed up and said, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. He's quoting Isaiah 40, and he's saying, it's happening now. This promised salvation from exile, from spiritual separation from God, it's happening. And that's why when Peter quotes Isaiah 40 back in chapter 1, and he says, this good news that Isaiah spoke about is the word that was preached to you. Here's what he's saying. Isaiah's promises are fulfilled in the gospel. They're fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And this good news is now being preached to you with a big surprise that is not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for the descendants of Abraham. This good news foretold by the prophets is preached is the word that was preached to you, Gentiles, says Peter. Peter, who watched Roman centurions believe in Jesus and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter, writing to a group of mostly Gentiles, understands so well that by believing in Jesus, they've been included in the people of God. And so he says to them four things, four titles that he gives to them. And by the way, if you believe in Jesus, if you're, if you're his, th- these are titles for you. What's he say to them? First, but you are a chosen race. Are you just, just thinking about this? He, he just told us in verse 8 about the people who stumbled over Jesus. And, and that includes a bunch of the Jewish people, like the Pharisees, who just hated him. And here now, you Gentiles who believe in Jesus, you're a chosen race. I mean, this is language that's coming right out of Isaiah 43.10 about them being chosen by God. And Peter says, to his readers, this is you. This is your new identity. You've been grafted into the people of God. This is your story now. The story of the people of God, that's your story now. Isaiah's prophecies, that's, that's your story now. This is what you've been made a part of. Now, there's, there's a lot of the New Testament that deals with this whole development. You can read Romans 9. You can read Matthew chapter 3. You can read Galatians chapter 3 to get at some of the some of the, the, the theology underneath this. Peter doesn't seem to be wrestling with it, though. Peter doesn't seem to be struggling with it. He's not saying, I mean, we don't get the sense now that he's like, yeah, but you're Gentiles. And how, how's, he just, 
He just gets it. You know that chosen race that Isaiah prophesied about? That includes you, all of you who believe in Jesus. This is who you are, even if you find yourselves strangers in a strange land, like, like Isaiah's readers did. You've been born again by the living and abiding word of God, and now you are a part of his people, and you are a chosen race. I want to preach the whole rest of the sermon here. We're going to come back to this, but guys, people, notice this that Peter applies the language of race, of ethnicity to people based on their faith in Jesus. Don't miss this. Second, what's he say? He says we're a royal priesthood. This language comes from Exodus 19. This is what God said to Israel. I'm going to make you royal priests, a kingdom of priests. Priests represent God on the earth. They mediate, they're the kind of go-betweens, and they bring his presence, they bring his blessing. And the priests were set aside to serve God. Their whole lives were devoted to him. Their whole lives. Their whole lives were devoted to representing God on earth. So as a people of God, so we are a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood, he says, Holy priesthood is, sorry, the language from verse 5. But he says here in verse 9, a royal priesthood. The, the, the language of royalty there points to us being a kingdom, a nation, and together we're devoted to God and we represent him on the earth. That, that, that's who we are. You know, it's amazing because priests, priests didn't choose themselves. If you, if you read through the Old Testament, priests never volunteered for the position. Who wants to be a priest? No, God, God picked them. And when they were picked, that's who they were. They didn't get to say, oh, I don't actually, not sure if I want that. I mean, the priests didn't have, uh, didn't have an inheritance with everybody else. They had to live in special towns all throughout the other tribes. They didn't have, they didn't have their own land. They gave up a lot, but they gained so much in getting to be God's special representatives. And Peter says, that's, that's us. We're a royal priesthood. Jesus bought us for himself. Remember Revelation 5, 9? By your blood, you bought men for God and you have made them a kingdom of priests. Jesus bought us. Like it or not, we are his kingdom of priests. Third title Peter uses is that we're a holy nation. This, again, comes right out of Exodus 19, verse 6. In many ways, this is just a different way of saying kingdom of priests because holy means devoted to God. We are a nation that's been devoted to God to serve him. And, 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 and so, yes, we've been made holy in status by the death of Jesus, but, but Peter uses the word holy to, to focus on, on the way that we live our lives devoted to God. We are a holy nation. Think about it this way. Every nation on earth is known for something or some things. Canada on the international stage is known for being a nice nation, a big nation, a polite nation, maybe a welcoming nation. As God's people, we are to be a holy nation. Number four, what are we? We're a people for his own possession. 
Again, this is Exodus 19.5, when God said, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. And this language of a treasured possession recalls a, a king who has, you know, basically all the wealth of the nation belongs to him. But the king would have a special reserve of precious jewels that belonged to him alone. And he would, you know, show them to the people that he wanted to. And they were the best of the... of of all of the wealth and, and, and by, by keeping it for himself, he was showing just how, how high and exalted he was. And God is saying to Israel, you are that to me. And Peter is now saying to us, if we believe in Jesus, if we're a part of his people, we are that for God. We're a people for his own possession. We belong to him in a special way. Now, yes, the whole world belongs to him, but we belong to him doubly. He didn't just make us, but he bought us and he made us his. Isaiah 43, 21 speaks about the people who I formed for myself. We belong to God. Titus 2, 14 talks about this when it says Jesus, quote, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself here it is, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We belong to God. This is just such a great reminder again as we think about God making us his treasured possession that when we, when we believe in Jesus, when we become followers of Jesus, we sometimes here in, in the West talk about, about making Jesus a part of our lives, asking Jesus into our heart, making God a part of our lives. And actually, it's kind of the opposite. God makes us a part of his life. God makes us a part of his story. If we can use that word. God makes a people for himself. When we come to Jesus, we become a part of something so much bigger than any one of us, one individual's. And, and there's, there's just a ton of blessing and comfort in this phrase. Think about it. If you are one of God's people, you belong to him. God takes good care of what belongs to him. There's real comfort in this. In a different context, the New Testament often talks about us being slaves of Christ and how comforting that is because when you belong to someone as their slave, they're responsible to take care of you. And we could just think for a while of just how safe we are. The comfort that comes from knowing we belong to God. We're his. But Peter, following the cues of Isaiah 43, doesn't quite focus on that direction. He, he focuses in on, 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 on the bigger idea. What was God's purpose for making us his? What, what, what was God after? Peter's answer is that we are a people for his own possession. That, and here we're getting to purpose. Here's the purpose of this identity. Why did God make us his own? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, this is Peter's way of, of, of rephrasing Isaiah 43, 21, where God said to Israel, you are the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. See, Peter's saying the same thing in different words. God made us his so we would declare his praise. Or as Peter says, proclaim his excellencies. 
This word proclaim that Peter uses has to do with announcing, sending out a report or, or a message. God made us his people for his own possession so we would announce or proclaim his excellencies. So everything that makes God excellent, we're to proclaim it. And that's why he saved us. If you think of Isaiah 40, where the, the herald of good news says, Behold your God. That's our job. That's our mission. This is what God's made us for. And don't miss it. This is God's initiative. God chose us. Think of you're a chosen race. God made us a people to belong to him. We are his possession. He called us out of darkness into his light. He called us. Do you see this just dripping with God's initiative? God did this. God did this. God did this. And here's why. So, so this is not, and we're going to come back to this at the end of the message here, but please hear this. This is not a call for volunteers. We've been saved by Jesus. And you know, if, if you really feel like it's laid on your heart, maybe you could, you know, give some of your life to declaring his praises. No, 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 no. God did all of this for this reason. So we, we don't get to, to, to opt out. This is the very purpose that we would proclaim. And this, this shouldn't feel like a, a heavy burden to us because, I mean, it's easy to declare the excellencies of someone who's excellent. I mean, when you see something amazing, you just want to show someone, right? You know, think of the latest thing you see on your phone. You're like, this is awesome. I got to show someone. When we see something amazing, we want to say, look at this. And, and as we see that God called us, us, we were in darkness he called us to himself and we heard his voice and we answered and we've come into the light. We know Jesus. We've got a future. We've got a hope. And we see all that he's done. We see everything we've read in First Peter. We just, we want to tell people. We want to proclaim his praise. In verse 10, Peter goes back to the theme of identity. You see the outline of these verses, identity, purpose, Identity. He touches back on the theme of identity one, one more time to help us soak in just a little bit deeper how wonderful it is to be God's people. So we're, we're not going to spend as much time on this, but just to understand what's going on, the words in verse 10 come from Hosea 1 and 2. Here's the background. Israel is in the middle of their long march away from God. They're breaking his covenant. He's promising to judge them. And, and, and God calls a prophet to himself, Hosea. And, 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 and Hosea has two children. Well, he has three, but we're going to focus on the two. And God tells Hosea to give the children names. And basically their names are like the message of God for, for the nation. So as those kids walk around, as people, oh, what's your name? As they, as they by, by, by saying their names, God's message to the nation is being given. So the first, the, the first child's name, it's actually his, it, it, not, not his first, but it, in terms of, of verse 10 here, first child's name is Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy. So, so again, so we think Lo Ruhama, that sounds nice. So that's just Hebrew for no mercy. So it's like you had a kid and you call it no mercy. So, you know, you, you're, in, you're in class or you're calling the role and you say, uh, and you are... I'm no mercy. Well, why? Well, 
God said in Hosea 1.6, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. No mercy for you anymore. That's, that's, that's the message of their name. And then the second child's name was Loami, which means not my people. Again, that was their name. It was like in English, it'd be like, not my people. Not my people. Time for Every time you say it, this message is being, is being proclaimed. And here's the thing. In the covenant that God made, the great promise to Israel is that they would be his people. And he's saying, not anymore. You've broken my covenant too much. You're not my people anymore. And you're not going to get any mercy from me anymore. Call his name. This is Hosea 1.9. Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I'm not your God. But here's the thing. As Israel is no longer God's people and no longer God's receiving God's mercy, they've just become like any other Gentile nation. Right? Think of the Philistines. Think of the Babylonians. They were all not God's people and they didn't receive his mercy. So God's brought Israel down to the status of every other Gentile nation. Which means you and I, before we knew Christ, that was us. We weren't his people and we didn't have any mercy. But, but God's not going to leave him there. Already in chapter one and then to chapter two, God's promised that he's going to call people who were not his people to be his people. He was going to take people without mercy and give them mercy. Verse 10 of chapter 1. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. That's, that's the gospel right there, guys. And then in, in, in chapter 2, verse 23. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. See, Israel gets booted out so they can be welcomed in. Welcomed in, mercy shown to them. And and, and here's what what Peter is seeing here and what the Apostle Paul sees in Romans 9 is that this is a picture of what, as, as God welcomes people who are not his people, as God welcomes people who had not mercy and gives them mercy, that's not just for Israel anymore. That, that's how he's treating all of us. If he does this with Israel, he's doing this with us. And so this, this becomes the basis to understand that God is welcoming Gentiles, people who were not his people, people who did not have mercy, to come and receive his mercy and be a part of his people. If God can do this with Israel, here's the thing, if God can do this with Israel, then the door is wide open for anybody to come and be a part of his people and receive his mercy. So that's what Peter does in verse 10. Says to his Gentile readers, once you were not a people. Well, yeah, we were born not his people. Once, he says, you would not receive mercy. That's, 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 that's where we all started off. Just children of wrath, like Ephesians 2 says, just God's judgment. We were on the outside without God, without hope. Like Ephesians 2 says. But what's he say now? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once 
You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The king has invited us to sit at his table. God's shown kindness to us. We've been made a part of his people. We've been given mercy that we don't deserve. And now this is who we are. And as Gentiles, we are as much a part of the people of God as if we were children of Abraham, because we are. And read Galatians 3 to see what that means. It's those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. So, what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with 1 Peter 2, 9-10? to So we see who we are, our purpose, and who we are. What are we? We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are God's people. We've received mercy. That's who we are. What's our purpose? Our purpose is to proclaim his praise, to declare his excellencies. This is who we are, and this is our purpose. So what are we supposed to do with this? What do we, how, how, do we, how do we process this overwhelming, overwhelming text? I, I'm, I'm even just afraid that even trying to preach it, we, 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 we distract from just the, the sheer majesty of these words. What do we do with this? Well, I have two suggestions. And the first is that we embrace our identity. We embrace, I mean, he's given us our identity. We embrace it. Hopefully this isn't a brand new idea to you because a lot of First Peter has been talking about our identity. Right out of the gate, what did Peter say? Right back at the beginning of chapter one. To those who are elect exiles, so chosen strangers. Right out of the gate, Peter's been helping us understand who we are. Last week we heard we're living stones, being built up, right? So, so much about identity. But today's passage has some of the strongest statements on who we are in the whole book of 1 Peter. These words help us understand what it looks like to embrace our identity as elect exiles, as chosen strangers. As Peter tells us, we are a chosen race, a holy priest, holy nation, a royal priesthood, people for his own possession. Peter is giving us our national identity and he's telling us that our identity as God's chosen people is stronger and more real than any other earthly identity we might have. So this this just this connects think of everything Peter has told us about being born again. Literally this these aren't just bible words that don't mean anything. I mean, there's no Bible words that don't mean anything, but you know what I mean? Sometimes we just think, oh, that's just Bible talk and doesn't connect to real life. No, no. Being born again, that's more real than the first time we were born. And this national identity we have, this this is who we are. God's children, ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. Just like God pulled Israel out of Egypt and made them a nation, so God has pulled us out of the darkness of sin and has made us a people. This is real. This isn't just abstract theology. This is real. This is who you are. If you are a Christian, then you are a part of a people, a race, a nation, an ethnicity that is more a part of who you are, that is more central to your identity than your ethnic heritage, the fact that you live in Canada, Saskatchewan, Nipawin, more than being a member of your family, immediate or extended, 
First and foremost, your identity is that you've been born again and are a part of the people of God. See, the early Christians got this. They had to get this because they faced so much persecution. They, they knew they'd never be at home in this world. They'd never fit in. And so their, their identity as God's people was all they have. Now, it's, it's so interesting. As we go back, see, the early Christians would use phrases like the Christian race, like ethnicity. They, they would even, some of them would talk about a third race of people. So there's Jews, Gentiles, and Christians. They're the third race. Now, maybe that's not helpful to think about there being three races, but, but what it gets at, that they took this seriously. They embraced their identity, that we're, we're immigrants in this world. We belong to another people, the people of God. We're not Canadian Christians or, or whatever your, your identity is. We are Christians who just happen to live in this country. The early Christians stuck out. They didn't fit into Roman society. And they didn't even try. As you read about their history, they didn't even try. They got accused of of forsaking their families, neglecting their duties to the city, not being patriotic. Their neighbors hated them. But, But that didn't faze them. They understood that to be a part of the people of God, that means that we're going to stick out. And that's not a bug, that's a feature. They're a different people, chosen foreigners, a whole other nation. And I'm emphasizing this because here in the West, especially over the last few decades, so many Christians seem to be on a mission to try to fit in with our culture as much as we can. One of the most horrifying thoughts to a lot of Western Christians is is having people think we're weird. So that's why we don't talk about Jesus at all. Well, I might wreck that relationship I have with them. It might make me look strange. Do, do, Do you see that? What goes on? God has called us to proclaim his glory. And yet, it's more important to so many of us that people don't think we're strange. So so we disobey God for the sake of fitting in. We so easily justify all kinds of decisions because we don't want to look strange. We want the world to think we fit in, we're cool. We want to, you know, we want to have a seat at the table. And I hope today's passage, I hope it's a challenge, but, but I, I, actually, I actually hope it's an encouragement here that this takes the pressure off to fit in. I hope you feel the freedom that you don't need to worry about what the world thinks about you. Feel the freedom of just accepting that you're going to follow Jesus and you're a part of his people and you're going to square your life to him And the world's going to think you're crazy. And you're going to stick out as much as if you just landed here from some other country and you don't speak the language and you don't know any of the customs and cultures. Think think of a new immigrant. You're going to stick out as much as them. And that's the way it's supposed to be. It's the way it's supposed to be. Because like Damien, Damien Newdorf is going to preach on next week, we are sojourners and exiles, strangers and foreigners. Now, as we're going to hear next week, we want to stick out for the right reasons. We want to act in an honorable way and be known for good works. But as we do that, they're going to think we're weird and that's normal. So yeah, we can hear the challenge, the challenge to to stop compromising 
for the sake of fitting into something that we're never going to fit into. But we also can hear the encouragement to just embrace our strangeness. And our is an important thing there, right? Because as we embrace that, we're a distinct people, at least we're supposed to be. Suddenly our relationships with one another mean so much more, don't they? This, remember the whole context here in First Peter about the command to love one another earnestly from a pure heart? As we look around, we see these are my people. This is our family. This is the people among whom I'm home. This is our national identity, to be the people of God together. So embrace your identity as the people of God. You're a Christian first before anything else. Second, today's passage calls us to fulfill our purpose. Why have we been made the people of God? That you may proclaim his excellencies. That's what it's for. So just think about this. Whenever you get something for yourself, it's for a purpose, or at least it should be. I hope you don't just get stuff just because. If you get a car, it's to drive it. If you get a hammer, it's to pound nails. If you get a water bottle, it's to drink water. If you get a jacket, it's to keep you warm when it's cold. If you get a dog, it's to destroy your furniture, right? We, we, get, we, we get things for purposes. And God has made us and made us his for what? So that we would announce to the world how amazing he is. So do you want to know what God's will for your life is? It's right here. I just told you God's will for your life. Here it is, that you would announce how excellent he is to the watching world. Young people. Okay, so we're going to divide us up into three groups. So young people, that's everyone who thinks that I'm old. Have you ever wondered about your future and what path in life you're going to take? Well, well here it is. You've been, if you believe in Jesus, you've been made a part of God's people in order to proclaim to the world how excellent he is. That's God's plan for your life. So what, uh, what school you go to, um, what job you choose, um, I, it's not in my contract that so you should go to NBC, but you, know, it, it, you can do that. But what school you go to, what job you choose, whether you get married or not, those are all details. But the mission for your life, what am I supposed to do with my life? It's right here. Proclaim to the world how excellent God is. There it is. People in this room who are around my age, this is still God's plan for you. We're at the stage in life where we're roughly halfway through. And this season of life comes with a lot of questions as we think about what have we done with the decades that we've already lived and, and, and what are we going to do with the decades yet ahead of us? Well, well here it is. Here's the plan that, that we would continue to give our lives in whatever situation we in and to make choices that align with this purpose that we proclaim as excellencies. Now, to people in this room who are older, and that's everyone who thinks that I'm young, you may be feeling the growing weakness in your body, the heaviness in your heart for your children and your grandchildren and your church, and, and you wonder, what does God have for me at this stage in my life? Well, the answer is the same. Proclaim the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 78, 4, we will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. That's your job. This is our national calling. And yes, it's going to look different for each one of us. We're each going to play a different part in this. 
And yes, it will involve our lives, but it will involve our words. So the question is not, what should we do? The question is, how? How can I best use my life with the opportunities and the resources God's given me to make him known? That's the question. Yes, we proclaim the gospel, and we need to back it up with our lives. But yes, we need to use our words. We need to use our words. Because that's what this says. I was talking to a friend this week, as we conclude here, I was talking to a friend this week who suggested that one of the reasons why Christians sometimes struggle to tell other people about God is that we don't do it with each other. I mean, should it not be normal for us when we gather as God's people to open our mouths and tell how awesome God is? So as we do that with each other, then this is going to be natural to do with the world, which is what what we've been made God's people for. So that's why if you flip over your handout, you're going to see the study guide, and there's a new question on the study guides this week. This is for all of you who are in a small group. This question encourages you to share with each other how you have seen God's glories in the previous week, how he's answered prayer, how he showed up, how you've seen him in his word, anything. And we're going to keep that question in there for the foreseeable future because the idea here is to get us deliberately encouraging one another by speaking out God's excellencies to each other. You don't have to be in a small group to do that. We should all do this when we connect as God's people. And so so here's, let me take a step further. This is our assignment for this week. As you go home this week, keep your eyes open to God's glory. Whether it's you're reading in his word, whether you're looking around you, whether it's ways he's answering prayer, keep your eyes open to God's glory. And then next week, Next Sunday, when someone asks you, how is your week? Proclaim God's excellencies to them. Tell them where you, got, where you saw God show up, how you saw something about God that was amazing, something you read in his word. This should not feel strange or uncomfortable because this is the very reason that we've been made his people. And as we practice this with each other, do you think we'll grow in our confidence at speaking to those who don't know him, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to the people we go to school with? We need to do this. This is our national mission. So may God help us do this together that we may do this for him. Let's pray. Lord, You have called us out of darkest night into your glorious light that we may sing the wonders of the risen Christ. Lord, should we not long for a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise, the glories of our God and King, the triumphs of your grace? Lord, each of us just has one tongue. But I'm praying you would use, you would help us to use it to proclaim your glories. Our gracious master and our God, assist us to proclaim. Each one of us, Lord, in whatever setting in life we're in, with whatever decisions and paths are ahead of us, assist us to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad 
the honors of thy name. Help us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.